0: Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. Isn't this amazing weather for Iowa in August? Like, wow, it's awesome. I went to the state fair on Thursday. I don't think I sweat. Like, that's first time that's ever happened. It's beautiful. So. Uh, appreciate being with you today. It's great to uh, study God's Word together. A um, couple things just to let you know about. Over the last couple weeks, um, there have been some additions to our staff team here. So in our junior high ministry, Mike DeWard is, uh, has ripped off the interim label of a junior high pastor, and he's now our junior high pastor. Really excited for Mike and having him on the team um, Wade Urig and his wife Claire have moved to Iowa City. Wade is our new pastor for 24-7, our college ministry. Uh, he's already jumped in and is doing a great job around here. And in October, you'll hear uh, Wade preach. Wade's a very gifted communicator. So excited for all of us to get to know Wade, but especially for our college students. So, and then Ben Clark has joined our administrative team. He's a full-time uh, director of communications. So all those have been good additions to our team. Very grateful. So the other thing going on uh, this week is uh, daughter number two is going to college. So I saw Lydia here. I know Lydia's starting this week as well. But um, Bethany's going to UNI, and she is so pumped to go. Like, I'm not sure I'm pumped yet. I was going through a drawer yesterday and reading all these old... uh, coupons that she wrote for me, C-O-P-O-N, coupons of like one cuddle time, or I'll play any game with you, or those kind of things kids make on Father's Day when they don't have a gift. They'll write you a coupon, right? So, but, so I got a little emotional yesterday. I'm not sure I'm ready for her to go, but she's ready. I mean, I think since April, when she found out who her roommate is, it's a gal from, from Ankeny, Uh, they've been in communication with each other about coordinating their rooms. Okay, we got to have the right bedspreads. We got to, you know, and all this stuff. And our poor UPS driver has just been running ragged. He's going to be so glad when she goes to school, like all these deliveries and a chunk of our house is ready to move up to Cedar Falls on Tuesday. So all that has been going on. She is so pumped to go. And I think just the desire is you know dad we got to make sure we got everything we got to make sure we're ready we got to make sure the room is good and the practical dad side of me goes like bethany this is like eight months of your life it's like an extended sleepover like so just kind of calm it down a little bit you'll survive you'll be fine and so where she and her roommate are worried about bedspreads and color coordinated things uh as a dad i tend to go a little deeper than that and is she ready is is bethany ready to go into college, and and is she ready to flourish? Um, There's gonna be a lot of challenges coming her way, maybe academically, or socially, or spiritually, or temptations that could come, or just the pressures of getting a job and those kind of things, is she ready? And, And as a father's heart, my bigger desire is, can she flourish in those years as a college student? And I can say the same thing, maybe and I'd be honest, not to the same level, but as a pastor, I love you guys and I love this church. And so some of those same kind of thoughts, like when you leave today, are you ready to go and flourish in a world where you're going to face some challenges this week as a parent or as a spouse or as a friend or as a student and just all the challenges you're going to face? Are you guys ready to go and to flourish in a world that at times can be kind of hostile uh, to Christians? into what you try to stand for. So how's that going to go for you? And I really think that the, the tone of the whole book of 1 John, today we're going to wrap up our study of the book of 1 John, is that it was written by John, one of Jesus' disciples, and for whatever reason, he was known as the disciple that Jesus loved. How would you like to have that moniker? That, that you were there when Jesus did miracles, you were there when you were the first one to the empty tomb to see that Jesus was alive but that you were first in line to receive the love of god through jesus christ what an amazing life story and so that man john wrote a letter first john this book we're studying to christians who were going through very difficult times it was it was hard the opposition against christians in his day was fierce and to complicate things there were other people in the name of Christianity. Who were, who were espousing different opinions, different views about who Jesus is, or about how we're supposed to live our life. And so John loved these Christians. In fact, in third John, the third letter he wrote, verse four, he said this, there is no greater joy than to see that your children are walking in the truth. And he wasn't talking about biological children, he was talking about his people, like he, he considered them his children, and there is no greater joy for him than to see that his children we're, were flourishing, were living in the truth. And so what we're gonna see in chapter five today, I think it's a good summary of the whole letter, and we're gonna see the word know six different times, not N-O, but K-N-O-W, that these are things we can know for sure. What I sense from John in this chapter is he's injecting confidence into our hearts. These are truths that you can know, that you can cling to so that you'll flourish in this week and in the life ahead as you cling to these truths. And he wants us to know who we are. He wants us to know who Jesus is. And he wants us to know where can we find life. So let me pray, and we'll jump into those three things. It's a long chapter. I'll try to get us out of here by 1.30, I promise, okay? So, no, there's good stuff here. But let me pray, and we'll jump into it. So, Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the heart that comes behind your word, that you're a loving dad. You love your kids. And I thank you for a man like John, who firsthand received the love of Jesus and then is now sharing that love with other followers of Jesus. Help us embrace, God, your truth today. Help us cling to these three truths uh, that, that that can help us flourish and stand strong, come what may, in this week and this year ahead. So help us listen and help us put it to practice. In your great name, we pray. Amen. All right, so the first thing we can know is who we are. Our identity is so important. I'm just imagining um, my daughter starting her relationships on a whole dorm floor. Sometimes uh, if high school hasn't gone so good or even if it has gone good for you, college is like a clean slate. Who are you? What is your identity? But there is the deepest identity we can have is our identity that God offers us through Jesus Christ. So who are we? So if you look at verse one, chapter five, verse one, starts like this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Let's just stop there. There there are assurances. What John's going to say is your identity is you can be a child of God. You can know for sure that God is your father. And and it's going to take three things. There's going to be a belief aspect to that. There's going to be a belonging aspect to that. There's going to be a behavior aspect to that. But the belief aspect is this. Everybody who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay, so that means putting your belief in Jesus means that your hope is in him. Your trust is in him. You see who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. It's the Old Testament promise of a Messiah who would come, who would be our savior and who would be a king. He would come and rescue us from our sin and he would be the one who would rule the world. If that is who you see Jesus to be and if your hope, your confidence is in him, then you are a child of God. And that's an, that's a, that's an important distinction because sometimes you'll hear the phrase thrown around, oh, we're all God's children. And in a sense, um, it's, it's different, okay? On one hand, I could see where that's coming from in the sense that we're all created by God. God loves every one of us. We, we bear his image as image bearers, but there's a unique relationship that comes to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he's the Savior who came to save us from our sins. That is the only way that sinful men and women like us can be in a relationship with a holy God, it's because Jesus saved us, okay? So if we believe Jesus is the Christ, we are born of God. In John chapter three, the gospel, John wrote, John, Jesus referred to this as being born again. There is a new life that you experience. We were, the Bible says, dead in our sins. We had no life with God. But through faith in Christ, we become born again. We become born of God. So there's a whole new relationship that we can have. So, so there's a belief component. And then he goes on and he says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the second thing that is true of a follower of God, of, of our identity in Christ, is that we love other believers, that we love, it's like a family here. You belong now, not just to God, but you belong to others who Believe in him. And so everybody who loves the Father loves those who have been um, born of him. So, this is a theme that you've seen John bring up in other places in this letter. He says, for example, that we can't say, I love God, but then I hate my brother. You can't, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't work in God's family. It'd be like if you came up to me and said, Doug, you know what? I really like you, but man, I just can't stand Lori. And actually that never happens. It's usually the other way around. Well, Glory's awesome, but what happened to you? You know, so but but that wouldn't be possible. Like we wouldn't you know, you tell me you love me, but you don't like my wife or my kids, that doesn't it doesn't fly. And so same with God. We can't say we love God, but then not love one another. So another assurance that we are children of God is that we'll see that we have a love uh, for one another. Now you could put a pause button there and go, wait a minute. I'm not sure I qualify then. Because I mean, I mean, sometimes you can just look, maybe don't point fingers, but maybe you could look around the room and there might be some people that you don't naturally connect with or that you have a hard time loving. And so we'll get to that in a little bit. But Jesus is saying, hey, if you really believe in me as the son of God and if you put your faith in me, you're going to be born again. And one of the things I'm going to do in your life is I'm going to give you the ability to love your brothers and sisters. I'm going to give you the ability to love Uh, Others who call me father. Okay, so there's a belief, there's a belonging. And then another assurance that we are children of God is our behavior. And John says this For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So this is another theme that you've seen throughout John's letter is that that we can't say we love God, but then disobey him. You can't say, Oh, yeah, me and God, we're tight. He's my father, but then I just do whatever I want to do, not what he wants to do. When my Faith is in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. He's in charge. And so now I'm going to follow him. I'm going to obey him. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you have to be flawless in that. In fact, you can't be. In First John chapter 1, John said, if anybody says he never sins, then you're a liar. And that's where John taught us in verse 1-9 that, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it doesn't mean you promise that you'll never sin again because nobody could qualify for that. I think the key word here is when John said that God's commandments are not burdensome, okay? So think about this. If God gave you commandments that you had to keep 100% of the time or else you were off the team, man, those would be burdensome. Like and there's nobody that could do them. It would be impossible. And so what you sense, though, from Jesus is that his commandments are not meant to be a burden. In fact, in John's Gospel, John chapter eight, Jesus said that a disciple of his will abide in his word. Like you'll live in his word, you'll, you'll love his commandments. And then Jesus said, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So like obeying God's commandments are not a burden because you're not doing them to perform. Uh, the, Christian, the Christian faith is not a story of what we accomplish by obeying God's commandments. The Christian, the Christian faith is a story about Jesus Christ completely fulfilling the commandments for us and then dying in our place because we are sinners. We fall short of those commandments and then he forgives us and he gives us the power to grow and to change and to obey the commandments so that we can be set free. So they're not a burden. That's an awesome thing. In the Christian faith, we are not the hero. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the one who obeyed perfectly and then is patient and gracious with sinners like us who do not always obey. But there will be a trend that when your faith is in Christ, because of him working in your life, you'll be able to love others. We love because he first loved us. As you taste his love, your relationships will grow. And as you taste his love and you see his heart, his commandments are not a burden to you, but there's something you long to do. There's something that he changes in your heart so that you will obey and follow him. So those are hallmarks. So what does it mean to know God and to 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 know who we are? We are born of God through our belief and then through belonging and then through behavior. Okay, so then he goes on and says there's a couple privileges. There's a couple privileges you have when you belong to God, when you believe in God. The first one is, is that you are an overcomer. Look at the next couple of verses. He says, uh, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Let's, let's talk for a little bit about the world. What's he talking about the world? See, he, he's not talking about the planet, okay, the literal earth. He's not talking about the people on the planet. When John talks about the world, there's times where what he is referring to is kind of like a spirit or an influence that exists in the world today that opposes God, okay? It's, uh, it's one that tries to cause us to live independently of God and to do our thing and not his, it's sort of an anti-Jesus movement. And so the important thing is right now is not to just start assigning people to that, but there's, let's go beyond the people and let's look at, there's an influence in this world that is, that is anti-Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, um, if the world opposes you, remember that it opposed me first. And Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Okay, so, so this, this can be a very hard place to live out your faith. But Jesus also said, uh, in the world you will have tribulation, uh, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. There, there was another time where John talked about this, this loving the world. He said, don't love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So again, it's this It's this influence that causes us to look away from God, to look away from Jesus, and look to other things to satisfy us or to save us. And so what John says is that you can be an overcomer of the world. You do not have to be succumb to those temptations or to those threats, but you can live boldly in this world. You can live as an overcomer. And so what that means is this. That doesn't mean that you go home today and you just start trash-talking your neighbors. I'm an overcomer. I've overcome you. I don't fear you. I don't, like, this isn't like a Smackdown, like, pre-fight, pre-McGregor, Merriweather, like, trash talk session. Like, you don't, you don't go do that today, okay? So what you do as an overcomer is what Jesus did as an overcomer. When he, when he stepped into this world, he didn't refrain, he didn't just pull back and isolate from the world, and he didn't charge ahead and just start yelling at the world and cutting the world down, but he entered in confident in who he was as the Son of God. And he came in and he compassionately served the world. That that's what we do as overcomers, that we don't fear the world, we don't isolate from the world, but we move in the world. And we're gonna talk about that at the end of the message. That's what God is calling us to do, not to live in fear, but to live courageously, to live with compassion and to live with joy in the midst of tribulation. Okay, so we're an overcomer and the other privilege that comes to us for being identified as God's son or daughter is that we can pray with confidence. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. That's an amazing promise. Again, the word "know" appeared just twice in those verses, that there can be confidence, in our prayer lives. And I, again, I think I'm afraid that sometimes verses like that, we just read and they just sail right past us. Okay, I pray and God hears. Next, like let, let's just pause for a second. That's an amazing statement that the, the God of the universe, the God who's infinite in power and glory and strength and wisdom and goodness, like why in the world would he have time for us? But he does, like he, he, hears, he hears your prayers so he understands them. He cares. He, he is with you as you're crying out. He's hearing you. He's listening to you. Very touching last hour, a woman that primarily watches us on live stream but came this morning because yesterday she found out that she has breast cancer and she just came because she needed to pray with somebody. She just needed to know that God hears and that God is with her. This is a powerful promise. I honestly think if we would just see God more clearly, and then at the same time see ourselves, how small we are, how needy we are, how dependent we are, and how awesome he is, our prayer lives will just shoot up this week. Like we, we saw that difference, right? And so this is what we have as, as a privilege of identifying as God's son is we can pray and God hears us. And he said if we pray according to his will, and I think that's a good clarifier for us, that prayer isn't like Amazon. It's not like you whip up a prayer and a box comes in the mail the next day, right? It's not like that. But you pray in line with his will. Jesus modeled that for us in the garden the night before his crucifixion. He asked the Father, uh, can you take this cup from me? Meaning, is there any other way? Can we, can we remove the cross from my plan? but Jesus said, but not my will, but yours. He surrendered to the Father's will. I love this quote by Tim Keller, and maybe it addresses, if you wonder about unanswered prayer sometimes, Tim Keller says this, that God will answer your prayers in the way that you would have asked them if you know everything he knows. Isn't that an awesome way to look at that? That God answers your, your prayers <clears throat> And the way you would have asked them if he would know everything that he knows. And so, so we pray with confidence that we just pray, God, if this is your will, this is what I would want. And we can know that when we put up whatever it is grieving you, whatever is hard for you, whatever you don't understand, there's somebody else you love going through hard times, you give that to God and he hears and he's at work. And you put confidence and trust in that. So those are two amazing privileges we have. So first we asked, who are we? And we say, through faith in Christ, we can become children of God. That's, I think that's the most powerful identity you will ever have. Just listen what that'll do for you. The, the identity you have in the gospel protects you from two ditches, okay? The one ditch is being arrogant and proud. Okay, if you believe the gospel, you are admitting that you are so flawed and so sinful that the only way God could rescue you was to have the holy uh, son of God come and die for you on a cross. Okay, so that that reminds us of who we are, but at the same time, it reminds you of your value to him, that God loved you that much that he was willing to let his son die for you. So that gives us that, that uh, identity that's gonna last because it's grounded in God and God doesn't change. Everything else you put your identity in, your grades, what if you have a bad semester? A girlfriend, what if she ditches you? Like whatever, anything else you put your identity in will not last like your identity in the gospel. And I don't think anything will protect you from those two ditches of pride and of, um, of discouragement and despair, like the gospel will. So your identity, who are you? Uh, through, through Christ, you are a child of God. The next two will go a little quicker. The second thing we can know for sure is who Jesus is. Okay, if our faith is in Jesus, then we need to make sure that he is who he says he is. So look at verse six. Okay, now John is all about evidence. He points us to what is true, and it's true because you can seek it out and you can explore it. The whole theme, I think the tone of the Bible is very similar. God says in the book of Deuteronomy, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you seek with all your heart. So there's an invitation to skeptics to check it out. Check out these truths that we talk about. At the beginning of John's letter, he said that he was writing about things that he has heard and seen with his eyes, touched with his hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest. We have seen it and we testify to you. So, John is all about evidence. And he says, I'm going to give you three testimonies that prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, and so he mentions water, he mentions blood. And he mentions the spirit, okay? So the water is a reference to Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, and at the end of his baptism, the voice that came from heaven where God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So there's an authentic, you know, authentication there that God said, this is Jesus, this is my son. The blood is a reference to the cross, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And if you read Matthew's gospel when Jesus was crucified, the, the world went black for three hours. It went dark in the middle of the day. And when Jesus gave up his spirit, it says that the veil and the temple was torn in two, and there was an earthquake, and there were so many things surrounding the death of Christ, and even how Jesus died, that a Roman centurion at the foot of the cross, who had probably seen the slaughter of hundreds of people before, was in awe at the death of Jesus and said, certainly. This is the Son of God. And the ultimate slam dunk exclamation point underscore was when three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. So it's the death, it's the blood of Christ that again is another testimony, that God says that is my Son, by how he died and by how he, how he was risen. And the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. There are a couple times in John's letter where John referred to the Holy Spirit, to the believers and said, the Holy Spirit is, is that person in you that reminds you of who you are because of Jesus, that that internal conviction, that eternal assurance. The, that's the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. In fact, in two weeks, we're going to do a whole sermon on the Holy Spirit and how he empowers us. So, So one of his roles, the Holy Spirit's role, is to remind us of who we are. He cries out from our hearts. Abba, Father, And means like Daddy. There's a cry out from our hearts from the Holy Spirit to remind us of our relationship with God. And so Jesus said that when he, he told his disciples, when I leave, I'm gonna send my spirit who will be another helper for you. And his roles included uh, to, to put the spotlight on Jesus and all that he has taught so that we will remember who Jesus is and what he's taught. The Holy Spirit is like a spotlight so if you ever walk by a spotlight, you don't go, wow, that is an awesome spotlight. Like what you're looking at is what the spotlight is shining on. And the Holy Spirit's role is to point us to how awesome Jesus is and how liberating his teachings are, okay? So, so another assurance, and, and one other thing Jesus taught us about the Holy Spirit is that wherever you are on the continuum this morning in believing God, you might even this morning be a skeptic and this isn't making any sense to you or you're confused. The Holy Spirit is even involved in your life this morning. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will come and that he will convict uh, the world, that that eventually my prayer for you would be that there would be a time where you begin to see, okay, this isn't making sense. Life my way isn't making sense. Trying to fulfill myself my way isn't working. I wonder who Jesus might be. I wonder who, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, even in a non-believer's life, to convict them so that they will turn to God, and then once you turn to God, God's spirit comes in you to assure you that you are God's son or daughter and that you have a relationship with him and he'll continually appoint you so that you'll see who Jesus is and he'll empower you to live more like Jesus lived. So, so those are three evidences. And, and um, I, I just encourage you this morning, if you are on the skeptical side of things, the whole tone of the scripture is check it out. The whole uh, attitude of Jesus towards skeptics was put on display where one of his own disciples named Thomas, he missed the meeting when Jesus showed up after his resurrection and showed everybody he was alive. Thomas for some reason missed it. I don't know what he was doing, watching a football game or whatever. So but he he said later, well if I could see the holes in his hands and, and put my hand in the hole in his side, then I'll believe him. And so when Jesus showed up to Thomas, there wasn't a scowl on Jesus' face. There was extended hands and an extended side. He was patient with Thomas, and he said, investigate and see for yourself that I am who I say I am. And so please know that that's God's tone towards you as you seek. And can I also encourage you to do what a friend of mine did. This was, man, it's been a long time now, about 15 years ago. We ran a series of outreaches on campus with a man named William Lane Craig, where he came and he, he goes around the country and does this, and he uh, defended the evidences for the resurrection. And the first night Dr. Craig spoke on campus, there was an open mic time, and there was a PhD student in, in philosophy department that just ran to that mic and just started blasting questions at Dr. Craig. And Dr. Craig just kind of disarmed and answered the questions. Over about two years, this man went from being hardcore skeptic to being a full follower of Jesus Christ when I heard him tell his story about what happened in those two years, what changed you? And he said there was one night where he just couldn't sleep because all these thoughts about Jesus that he was learning were just kind of pressing in on him, you know, just kind of in his head, like he just couldn't get to sleep. And so finally he said, okay, let me just do an experiment. I'm very intellectual, guys. Let me just do an experiment. What if for the next three months I operate with all these pieces of data with, with the thought of this? What if this is true? What if this could be true? And he said for him, it was like he just flipped on a faucet. And from that time on, truth after truth just started making sense to him to the point again where he gave his life to follow Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to you is that maybe just at least say, what if this is true? And then read God's word. I would encourage you to get into community with other believers and watch how they live. Some people think that you have to believe and then you get to belong to a church Uh, let me just encourage you, community groups, church, ministry leaders, I would love to see that happen the other way too. We can invite people to belong and be with us. And as they're journeying with us, that then they can believe in Christ. I've seen so many people come to Christ with the belong then believe. So my invitation to skeptics is jump in, come with us, study the word with us and then see if these things aren't true. So you can know who you are, you can know who Jesus is, and the last thing we can know is where we will find life, who gives us life. These next three verses, you guys, I think are the key verses to the whole book of 1 John. Okay, listen, and you'll just see John's heart here, black, white, this is how it goes. Look what he says. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Don't you love that? Like, John, just cut it straight, okay? I'll cut it straight. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And if you have the Son, I want to assure you that you have eternal life. Any questions? Like, is there anything not clear there? But that's the way he put it out, that we can know for sure who gives us life, that life is going to be found through Jesus Christ. And so when my daughter steps on campus on Tuesday, uh, there are going to be just immediately, and for any of us that step in to our week after we leave church today, just bombarded with offers for where you're going to find life. Good grades, a good job on the other end of school, the right friends. The party scene, the right car, the right clothes, the right, just all of that. All those things are offers for where we can find life. And John just cuts it straight and says, if you have the son, you're gonna have life. If you don't have the son of God, you won't have life. I've written these things to you, again, to encourage those who have faith in the son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. When the Bible talks about eternal life, I think we immediately think of heaven, like we think of life that never ends, and that's true. That eternal life means you don't have to fear death. You will live for eternity in the presence of God, and that's, that's awesome, okay? Eternal life also means now. It's a depth of life that comes because you're going to have power over sin. You know, the, the anger, the bitterness, the hatred, the The greed, all the things that just rob us of life. Jesus said, The thief came to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what all those things do to us. But Jesus said, I came that you might have life, that you might have life to the full. If you have Jesus in relationship with him, not only do you have power over death, but you have power over sin. You can sin less, sin can have less control and power over you to rob you of your life. It's a little late in a sermon to throw out a controversial topic, but I'm just gonna do it. You guys can handle it. You're, You're with me. Okay, look at verses 16 to 19. I think it'll clarify how do we fight sin in our lives. Verse 16, it says, if anybody sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he will ask and God will give him life. His brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, oh, I'm sorry, God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, but I do not say that we should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everybody who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay, man, it didn't help that I butchered reading that. It's already a little tricky to begin with, but let me just talk about a couple of things. It's a little confusing. He's talking about two kinds of sins. Let's clarify, and John would agree about this, that every sin is deadly. Like all sin cuts us off from God, okay? He's talking about, maybe he's talking about here two types of sinners, okay? There's the first one where um, he says there's a sin that leads to death. And what he's referring to there, he's mentioned it a couple other times in his letter, are people who see what God has offered through Jesus and totally reject it. It even happened in Jesus' day. There was a time where Jesus did a miracle, and some Pharisees said, oh, it was Satan that did that miracle, not God. And so Jesus called that the unforgivable sin. And so I think it's a similar thing here in First John, that, that God has given us all these evidences that Jesus is his son. And if we say, no, I don't believe that, then we are making God a liar. And it's really believing who Jesus is that enables us to have sins forgiven. And so, if you're rejecting the sin forgiver, there is no way your sins can be forgiven. That—that's what John is referring to as the sin that leads to death. I also think John's—it sounds harsh when he says, "Don't pray for them." Okay. I think what he's actually saying here is he's—he's he's lifting up who he really says we should pray for. It's a priority here. Uh, long story. In John 17. Jesus does something similar, where he says, "You know, I pray for the ones that you have given me. I don't pray for the world." So wait, does Jesus not love the world? No, Jesus loves the world. But in that moment, his focus was on praying for his disciples. Same thing here. In this moment, John's focus is on, remember he calls people in the church, they're like his kids. He's so concerned about them. And he says, okay, I'm not praying for those that are just flat out rejecting Jesus right now. I'm praying for those who are sinning, but that sin isn't going to lead to death. And the reason why is that he's confident that these people, when that sin is prayed for, and confronted that those people who know Jesus are gonna do first John 1 9. They're gonna, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins, will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what I want you to notice in that is like, okay, that could be any one of us who follow Jesus. We could be, we could be in sin. There could be some things we're doing that aren't right. What he's inviting is he's inviting other people into that with us. This isn't like Us, uh, isolated on our own, trying to fight sin just by ourselves. What he's calling us to is to be a community that when we see each other in sin, then we're going to pray for each other, not gossip about each other, uh, not withdraw, but we're going to move in and we're going to pray. We're going to be praying for each other, and then we're going to watch God have victory over that sin. As, As a follower of Jesus, you do not have to sin. You have a new power over sin. And what John is inviting us to is as a family, let's pray for each other. Let's pray for those sins. And I think and I hope that you hear over this next year, this is a theme we wanna talk about more as a church because I think our tendency is that when we sin and struggle, we just try to keep it quiet. We don't want anybody else to know because, man, everybody else here is perfect except me. That's the biggest lie that you'll ever believe, okay? So everybody here has sin. Everybody here is messed up, okay? Just turn to the person next to you and say, you're messed up. Dude, go ahead. It's, it's true. Just tell them you're messed up. We are all messed up, okay? And so instead of being a church that we pretend we're not, or that we don't sin, what John's calling us to be is a, ch- as a church that prays for each other, because we love each other, and there's victory over sin. So where are we going to find life? We're going to find it in Jesus Christ. It means we have power over death, and we have power over sin. And bottom line is that eternal life is going to be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. John 17, 3, Jesus was praying before his crucifixion, and he said, um, this is eternal life. This is what eternal life is, that they may know you, the only true God, and they may know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you want to find life, if my daughter is going to find life in college this year, if any of us are going to find life in this next school year coming, it's going to be through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what God is trying to do here, and I think maybe a good summary of all of 1 John, is that God is trying to transform us as a people and as a church into a community of people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and we're absolute in that, that we know who Jesus is, that we know the evidence, we know the truth, and that we belong to each other. We are committed to each other and that our behavior will continue to change. That that is what God is doing in our midst. And and church and people, our world needs this today. Like you just see what happened in Charlottesville yesterday. You see, there's just intense, this is is a unique season in our country that I feel like in many ways we're on the edge. You know, there's hatred, there's violence, there's anger on on different sides all coming at each other. I think our country is going to grow weary of that and frustrated at that. And they're going to need to see an alternative. They're going to need to see people who believe in Jesus Christ, people who love each other, people who are called not to condemn the world, not to pull back from the world, but to step in because we're overcomers, not to man up over the world and taunt the world, but to come in under this world and serve this world and, and that God would use us to restore this world, that we move in like Jesus did to our messed up lives, the way Jesus moved into a messed up world, and he didn't come to be served but to serve. I think God is calling us to be that. Let me end with this quote. There's a pastor in New York City named John Tyson, and he says that as a church, we're stepping into a time where we need to be a creative minority. There's a time, I don't know if even that time was legit, but that that maybe in our country, the church had more of a voice in the public square, but that day is gone. But now God has called us to be powerful and influential as a creative minority, and he describes it this way, as a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. John would say, go do that. Go be the church. Go flourish and be strong in your faith in Jesus Christ Be strong in your relationships with each other. Any of you this morning that are trying to do this alone, it will not work. God calls you to community. So any college student here this morning that's thinking about just going to college and not going to church or not getting a group, that's not a wise choice, okay? Anybody here this morning that just comes to church because you like to go to church and that's all you do, that is not wise. You're called to be part of a community, okay? And then we are called to extend the gospel together. You know, there have been more Muslims who have come to Christ in the last 30 years than in all of human history combined. You go, what, what are you talking about? Like, I think in the last 30 years, we've seen maybe some of the most violent strains of radical Islam, and it's exactly that that's driving many, many Muslims to Christ because Muslims who follow Jesus are boldly banding together. They're lining up with Jesus Christ, and they're extending a whole different way to live through the gospel, and God is drawing people to them. I think we as a country are stepping into that day where people need an alternative. And that alternative is gonna be found in Jesus Christ. So let's, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for how practical your word is and how just straight up John was with us this morning. And I just pray that everybody in this room hears that this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He that has the son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know that you have eternal life. God, may we be people who know for sure who we are, who Jesus is, and who it is that's gonna give us life and help us band together as followers of Christ to extend the gospel to this city and this world. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.